Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. This is an unusual episode of Naked Reflections. My two guests, one Muslim and one Jew, are going to engage in a dialogue about the Quran and the Bible. Today, you're going to eavesdrop on a real, a genuine Muslim-Jewish conversation. Are the similarities greater than the differences? How should texts be interpreted? And how do they manage disagreement? Today, when there are clear tensions within and between Jewish and Muslim communities, you will hear about some of the most well-known stories from their two scriptures and what they mean to them. We will focus on the person mentioned most often in the Quran, not Muhammad, by the way, the person mentioned almost three times as often as Abraham in the Bible. Have you guessed who? It's Moses, known to most Muslims as Musa. Sheikh Ibrahim Mogra is an imam from Leicester and a member of the Muslim Council of Britain. He's been engaged in interfaith dialogue for many, many years and is also Muslim chaplain at Canary Wharf in London, one of the largest financial centres in Europe. Where do we find you today, Ibrahim? Well, like most of the uh, nation, I am homebound with the lockdown, sadly, due to COVID-19, uh, trying to keep up uh, with the work uh, that needs to be done and also uh, keep the children busy with what they need to do. Uh, and to do my bit to make sure that the household is running as efficiently as possible. Rick Sofa is a trustee of the Montefiore Endowment, a member of the S&P Sephardi Congregation in London, whose synagogue was established in 1701, the only one in Europe, until the outbreak of the coronavirus, that was open continuously for worship since then. And Rick, your family are Jews who lived in Iraq since Babylonian times. How long is that? Oh, 2,000 years. At least. Now, dialogue has been discussed on more than one occasion on the Naked Scientist podcast. Dr. Melitza Gashic of the University of Cambridge explains what dialogue means to her. She's been researching on dialogue between computers and humans. My goal is to uh, model more uh, richer conversation. And in particular, uh, one idea that I have is to build a dialogue system that can be used for prevention of mental health illnesses. And the idea would be to develop a dialogue system that everybody could access on their phone whenever they like, whenever they have a problem, they could get anonymous instant support. So I think that would certainly have huge impact. But also from a scientific point of view, these dialogues would be much richer. So it wouldn't be about ordering Chinese food, but rather about trying to model real conversation. Let's begin our real conversation by asking my guests about the links between the Bible and the Quran. Rick, let's start with you. The Bible, by which I mean the, I understand to mean the five books of Moses, the Torah, you can extend it to take into account books like the uh, prophets, such as Isaiah, or the writings like the Psalms, which would be called Zabur in Islam, in the Quran. Uh, or the oral Torah, the interpretations, uh, 
all of those are what I understand to be the Torah. And if we're speaking about Moses, then Moses is a terrific subject on which to discuss uh, the the same way that the Quran and the Torah relate to Moses, who we call in the Torah in Hebrew Moshe, and I think in the Quran called Musa. And what about the links between the Bible and the Quran, Rick, from your perspective? Well, I've just done something tremendously interesting, which is to look in the Quran for all the references to, Mo- to Musa, to Moses. And I was absolutely amazed. There are 137 references to Musa in the Quran, and 129 of those, I managed to find a direct link to a verse or a passage in the Torah uh, mentioning exactly the same things in exactly the same terms. And I'm looking forward later on to finding out about the eight that the Quran mentioned that weren't in Torah. We'll ask Ibrahim about that. So, Ibrahim, are you surprised to hear that? Not at all, no. Um, and this discovery, if I could put it that way, uh, by Rick and his uh, study of the Quran, uh, further uh, solidifies uh, Muslim views and belief that the Quran is simply a continuation of God's previously revealed scriptures. Uh, As you would know, uh, Muslims do believe in uh, the Bible, uh, in the Torah. Uh, It is part of our faith requirement that we believe in it. So I'm really thrilled uh, by uh, Rick's uh, discovery, if you like, uh, that there are so many similarities uh, between uh, the Bible and the Quran with regards to Musa, Moses, peace be upon him. Let's take the question of the approaches to scripture. A general question, first of all. How similar, how different are the Muslim and Jewish approaches to their holy scriptures? Ibrahim. So we have uh, principles of how to interpret and understand uh, the Quran in particular and also previous scripture. Uh, the science of tafsir, uh, Quranic exegesis and commentary, is one of the most uh, vibrant and thriving areas of uh, Muslim scholarship. Uh, thousands and thousands of uh, volumes have been written on the commentary and interpretation of the Quran. Uh, in a nutshell, one of the ways in which we interpret the Quran is by using the Qur'an itself. So parts of the Qur'an will explain other parts of the Qur'an. One verse will uh, elaborate and further explain a particular verse, and so it enhances people's understanding of what exactly God is trying to say to us and is requiring of us. Then, of course, we have the secondary source, which is the hadith collections, the traditions of Muhammad, peace be on him, how he explained the Qur'an. He was the recipient of God's word, and he understood it best, and he taught it to his followers that this is what is to be understood from it. Uh, People like myself in contemporary times, we uh, want to understand the Quran in our context, uh, in light of how uh, the modern world operates and is constituted by the diversity of peoples. Uh, I try to uh, always maintain a solid connection with the uh, with the principles uh, and also with the uh, classical interpretations as I try and explain 
the Quran to my audiences uh, so that it is contextualized and they can see its relevance to them. Uh, Muslims are very quick to claim that the Quran is for all time at every stage of, of our lives, indeed until the end of times. Uh, so this is one approach that, that we that we take. Rick, I wonder if you could comment on the relevance of the Quran to the study of the Torah. Ibrahim was saying that as well as the internal um, interpretation of Muslim texts explaining Muslim texts, and as you've just said, Jewish texts explaining Jewish texts, one of the intriguing things about this conversation, I think, is that you're both arguing that understanding each other's texts, the foreign text, if I can call it like that, is uh, important to one's own self-understanding. So, Rick, how does Quran important? Well, my personal impression uh, is this, that first of all, the Quran is the same narrative as the Torah, uh, as I mentioned. Secondly, that uh, it's absolutely clear that the Moses has a central place. The Torah um, was given to Moses in both scriptures, uh, and, and thirdly, that any factual differences are actually quite trivial. So what does that leave us with using the Quran to expound on the Torah? There is one significant area that I wanted to ask Sheikh Ibrahim about, and that is that the Quran keeps bringing in the messages or the interpretations or the meanings of these stories, and in particular keeps reminding us of God or Allah's relevance uh, steering this story or what God sees in this. And uh, we can, God's influence, which is much more prominent in the Quran than the Torah approach, we see in several passages. Uh, and I wanted to ask Sheikh Ibrahim to expound on that further. So Musa's relationship with God is, for me, it's just such an amazing encounter he had on in the blessed place of Tua in Mount Sinai at the burning bush, as we know it, uh, on, on uh, in the place of Tur, that he expresses his desire to see God. He's been in conversation with God, and now he wants to take it to the next level. You know, God, we've, we've talked, right? Now I want to see you. I really want to see you. I love you so much. I want to see you. And God says to him that you cannot see me, not with that you have. Uh, but I will show some of my light, some of my presence on the mountain over there. And if the mountain remains intact, you shall see me. And lo and behold, the mountain was smashed to smithereens and Moses fell down, fainted. And he realized that Indeed, he could not see the Lord with the eyes of this worldly life. Uh, but Moses also, in some amusing way, is uh, much appreciated by Muslims because when Muhammad, peace be on him, went on his night journey on the Miraj to the heavens, he was given a gift of 50 times daily prayers by God Almighty. And on the way down, Moses was very curious to find out what gift he had received, and Muhammad told him, I've been given 50 times a day daily prayers. And Moses said, you better go back and ask for a reduction because your people will not be able to keep 50 prayers a day. And so it continued. Up and down he went, and each time it was reduced by five. Uh, 
eventually only five were left. And God said, if your people pray five times, the reward will be 50. And how right Moses was. <laughs> Many of us do struggle to pray five times a day. The uh, very carefully explained description of how the exegetes look at the Quran uh, is actually a very similar process to rabbinic Judaism and what it did with the Talmud and explaining verse by verse the uh, meaning of Torah verses. And then you have explanations of the explanations uh, and so on. Wow, that's just uh, amazing to hear that. Because, you know, for Muslim audiences, Moses, Musa, is such a favorite. Like if I was sitting on the pulpit about to give my talk, the moment I mentioned the name Musa, peace be on him, I can actually see people sitting up, ears pricking up, because they know there's a really good story coming up now. It starts with the time when Pharaoh was killing all male children because he was fearful that he, his rule would end. Moses is born amongst the Banu Israel, the Israelites. Uh, his mother becomes fearful, puts him in a basket in the Nile and ends up being adopted by Pharaoh's wife, Asia. He lives in the royal household, grows up into a young man, has that incident where he inadvertently ends the life of someone, has to run away to Midian, to Madian, comes across the well where the shepherds are giving water to their flocks, finds the two ladies sitting by themselves waiting for their turn, offers to help them. They go back home, tell father about this amazing man that they met, uh, eventually is invited over gets married to one of them, serves for 10 years, moves on with his family to Egypt. And uh, God then begins his conversation with him and his relationship with him. He's given the special miracles, the staff or the rod. He takes on the sorcerers. He displays miracles to prove that he's the messenger of God. He asks God to enable Aaron, Harun, peace be on him, his brother, to help him because he was more eloquent in speech. They go and try and convince Pharaoh. He doesn't accept the message, claims to be the greatest God. And then the plagues and then the escape from Egypt of the Banu Israel, the tribes of Israel, the splitting of the sea, the hosting by God, manna and salwa, quail from the heavens, and interestingly, we also talk about how difficult the Banu Israel, the Israelites, were with Moses, that they gave him a really hard time, that they were receiving food from the heavens, yet they said, we, we're tired of this now. Can you get us some, some uh, lentils, some onions, some herbs, some vegetables, and things like that? And then his encounter with God uh, on Mount Sinai, on tour, where he's given the Torah, uh, and then his disappointment with his people um, worshipping the golden calf. Uh, and eventually, uh, emancipation from, uh, from not just idol worship, but also from slavery and freedom from uh, the people of Israel. So that, in a snapshot, is 
that amazing story. There's much, much more that I've left out. The audiences thoroughly, thoroughly enjoy a good old story of Musa in the Quran. There is, of course, one uh, name of a place which is mentioned in the Quran and not in the Torah, and that's the Valley of Tuwa, where Moses uh, sees the burning bush. God speaks to him and tells him to go and get his people out of Egypt. And um, that is meant that name place name is mentioned in the Quran, uh, not in the Torah, but that's an exception, of course. At the same time, it's also interesting that the Quran declares that God does not make any distinction between the prophets. They're all God's prophets. But he also tells us that there are some amongst them who have been given some special gifts. So with Moses, we refer to him as Kalimullah, the prophet who had a conversation with God. So every time the Quran uh, tells us a story, there is a reason behind that story. And that is for us to appreciate and understand God's role and what he wants from us. When I'm telling you this story in the Quran, what is it that I want from you? Uh, so clearly many of these will be reminders. It could be a warning. It could be an encouragement to do the same. It could be uh, discouraging that don't you do this because look what happened to the people of the past. So you've got to stay away from this. Uh, it's about helping the reader to rectify himself or herself. It's about realizing that everything that happens in and around us, God has a role to play in it. And if we want to be successful, if we want to be saved, uh, if we want to thrive, whatever the case might be in any situation that we find ourselves in, we must always turn to God. And uh, when we do that, uh, we will have what we desire uh, will happen and uh, we will find success in our efforts. And for me, what also makes it really exciting and interesting is how Muslim scholars and exegetes will utilize the Torah uh, uh, much more perhaps than the New Testament in trying to understand the Quran itself. Uh, we have uh, also a tradition of utilizing the Israeliyat, uh, the traditions of largely Jews, but also Christians, in how they understood uh, the Torah, the New Testament. And we try and uh, maybe at times uh, fill in any gaps that they might be present. Uh, the Quran may not say so much about certain things uh, as the previous scriptures do. And what I find particularly interesting for myself personally, when I have done scripture reasoning, is the detail in the previous scriptures with regards to names of people, names of places, the geography of places is fascinating because the Quran is very uh, limited in, uh, for example, the number of people it, uh, it mentions, just about 25 of the 124,000 prophets and messengers that we believe were sent by God. Uh, in terms of names of places, very few places are mentioned uh, Misr, Egypt is mentioned, Bakka, Makkah is mentioned, uh, Al-Aqsa, the furthest mosque is mentioned, uh, Madian is mentioned, a few. They're not so many. Uh, but when I read the, the Torah, the New Testament, it's full of names of people and places. And that, to me, is an additional source 
with which I can uh, create a fuller picture of a story that I'm trying to share with my audiences. Rick, how would you respond? Well, the Quran mentions in several places God's intervention in places where the Torah does not mention God. And one of them that's an extraordinary one is where Pharaoh announces himself to Moses and says, I am the Lord most high. He claims to be God. And, Mo and Moses counters him and says, no, I represent the Lord of the East, the West, and what is between them, a tremendous uh, expression in the Quran, which is not in Torah. And if I can try it in the Arabic, it would be, Rab al-Mashriki wa al-Maghribi wa ma baynahuma. And uh, that powerful expression is the Quran's way of adding the emphasis of God all the way through the Quran. It, it does that, and that's the case in the Moses story. Well, with those words ringing in our ears, let's pause for a moment. You're listening to Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler, and my guests this week are Ibrahim Mogra and Rick Sofa. And we're taking part in a genuine dialogue, in this case, a Muslim-Jewish dialogue. One of the pioneers of theological dialogue in the 20th century was Martin Buber. He argued that a personal relationship with God is only truly personal when there's not only awe and respect on the human side, but when we're not overcome nor overwhelmed in our relationship with God. This has implications for our guests, Rick and Ibrahim, because it means that Jews and Muslims should meet as two valid centers of interest. Not only is the essential being of the other to be respected, but the world of their faith is also treated as valid and genuine. Can you affirm one another's religion as valid and genuine? Even though one of you is a Muslim and the other a Jew. Let's start with you, Ibrahim. I think I probably find this um, a relatively easier question to answer, especially as uh, we believe that Islam is a continuation of Judaism and Christianity, perhaps not in the same way as we know them today, but certainly historically, uh, the worship of the one true God is central uh, in the Abrahamic traditions. Uh, the centrality of scripture uh, divinely revealed by God is also central, and the role of prophets and messengers is very, very central teaching us prayer, fasting, charity, and all the rest of it. So, yes, I would say that Judaism is a religion that I can uh, believe that is from God. Uh, but I would take it a step further and say that with the coming of Islam, uh, God's chosen way for people to find him, to connect with him, to serve him and worship him would be that which is established by the traditions of Islam. So not necessarily uh, continuing Jewish practice per se. Um, obviously, I would worship God in the Muslim tradition, but bearing in mind that Jewish practice, uh, as taught by Moses, was what God had chosen for the people. Well, it sounds like we've agreed on a lot but I need to push you both a little bit harder because dialogue, a genuine dialogue, has to tease out differences, disagreements. So let's start with this one. How do you deal with the different truth claims? Because let's be honest, Judaism and Islam have these respective truth claims. I'm hearing you say how much you not only respect 
each other's tradition, but you can refer to the scriptures of each other, other's tradition to help understand your own. But there are different truth claims here. How do we work out that way of living, coexisting one beside the other and hold on to these different truth claims? Yes, I, I've said uh, a number of times uh, today that um, Islam is the way that I believe God wants us to serve him, worship him, and build a relationship with him. The Quran is explicit. It says that anyone else who chooses a different way uh, will have that rejected. Uh, in other words, Islam is the way to approach God. I am very comfortable in making truth claims, and I'm also okay with people who wish to make similar truth claims for their own faith and for their own religion, as long as we do not um, utilize means and ways that are violent or are insulting uh, and demeaning to the other. We all love our own faith tradition. I would be very hurt if somebody said something very hurtful about my religion, so I should not do the same about other religions. I can respectfully say that I disagree with you on X, Y, and Z, um, and uh, we move along. I think what has caused uh, difficulty for many around the world is the misuse of uh, some Muslims, uh, the, the misuse of da'wah, uh, proselytization and invitation to God, to Islam, by some Muslims who have utilized methods which are uh, un-Islamic. They are not sanctioned by the teachings of Islam. We are to invite people uh, through wisdom, through kind words, if we are to dialogue with them, to dialogue in a very respectful way. And uh, I think the most powerful way of inviting people to our religion would be by setting a good example, by being a good role model, by presenting an alternative lifestyle to others. Uh, and uh, that's how I reconcile between my truth claim and uh, accommodating and accepting others to be who they want to be. Well, the truth is very difficult, if not impossible to establish. Uh, I take the view on Islam that uh, it's just a helpful additional source of interpretation, information, and I can't see any reason to be against the teachings of Islam. They're so similar to the line of Judaism and the Torah that I'm more familiar with. But how do we deal with violence in our scriptures? Um, Rick, let's start with you. There is violence, isn't there, in the Torah? Well, I came to appreciate how much violence there was in the Torah by looking at the Quran first. I'd heard about all these violent verses in the Quran, such as the one, slay the idolaters wherever you find them, that was used by Osama bin Laden when he launched his campaign against the West. But uh, I then went to the Torah and found verses which were much more violent. There's one where Moses, after he's seen the children of Israel misbehaving and I, uh, with idolatry at the Golden Calf episode, he takes everybody, he says, everyone who's on the Lord's side, stand with me. And then invoking an instruction with God, he tells them to take their sword and who's ever on the other side, the non-believers, they should be killed, even if it's their brother or their neighbor or their close relative. 
So that is a much more violent verse than the, anything in the Quran. Well, fortunately, the rabbis uh, came up with a whole series of, of ways in which the violent verses of the Torah should not be applied today. There were, for example, 613 commandments. Many of them have been deemed to be not relevant to today. There's a general approach to uh, taking some of these violent verses and saying they were only applicable at a certain time to a certain, a certain people. And then if they don't feel into those categories, then quite often they fall into what the historian Philip Jenkins called holy amnesia. That means the rabbi in his sermon just doesn't mention them. They just don't get any prominence. Ibrahim. So I want to start by saying it's very gracious of Rick to um, say that the Quran is less violent in comparison um, as, as a person who believes in the Torah. Um, really, uh, I would want to argue on behalf of all of our scriptures to say, look, um, God is our almighty creator and God decides what he decides and he instructs his messengers and prophets to carry out his instructions. Uh, and so that's what it is. However, I think context is so critical, particularly when it comes to the Quran. So an example has been used of how Osama bin Laden used the verse of the Quran that says, wherever you find the disbelievers, lay in wait for them and slay them and treat them harshly. Uh, that is to be understood within a context. Now, even with context, the danger is that people will always be able to manipulate a certain uh, verse of the Quran and make it fit to their context, even if it was not meant for that. Historically, if we look at that verse, it is when the Muslims were besieged and were almost on the verge of being annihilated. Uh, and they did not know how to respond to this until God gave them permission. So we need to rewind a verse or two before that, in which it actually says that God gave the Muslims permission to pick up arms in self-defense. And so when open warfare is then declared, sadly, a war is about killing the enemy. There are no two ways about it. And so the Muslims were encouraged to be firm, to be harsh, and to use strategy, uh, uh, all, all the stratagem of war, to make sure that they could defeat their, their enemy. If it meant laying in wait, in ambush, and then killing them, that was what was required. Now, I cannot pick that verse today and use it against non-believers and non-Muslims. I live amongst a community where there are many non-believers and we live together in peace and in harmony. Even if relations break down, that verse, I can never use it to cause harm to my neighbors who are non-believers because there's a context and there's a place for that. Rather, there was a place for that in Muslim history. Thank you, Ibrahim. But it's very clear that you and Rick have spent a great deal of time and effort thinking about our sacred scriptures, not only in terms of what they have in common, but also where they differ. And you haven't been fearful of tackling the most difficult texts. But I would like to bring this podcast to a close and recognize the fact there is so much in common. In fact, I think there's probably more in common uh, between 
Jewish and Muslim holy scriptures, whether it's about Moses or other figures, than differences. So if so, and I think that's your argument, what are the implications for Jewish-Muslim relations? Let's start with you, Rick. Well, I think, first of all, uh, as I've discovered personally, uh, a Jewish person should not be afraid of picking up the Quran. I think it, the Quran provides really interesting um, explanations of Torah. I think that the uh, that Islamophobia today, of which I'm sure there is quite a lot, can perhaps be linked with what I'd call Quranophobia, which is people getting worried about odd phrases they hear in passing mentioned from the Quran. And I think a better understanding of the Quran wouldn't do any harm at all in improving Jewish-Muslim relations. I also find it amazing that uh, more Muslims aren't like Sheikh Ibrahim. From what I understand, Sheikh Ibrahim seems to have a pretty good grasp of Torah, but I suspect that most Muslims uh, don't. And that's surprising because the Quran is stated to be uh, uh, like a confirming book of the Torah, even a commentary or expanding on Torah. And uh, so it is quite interesting even to see their own where their own customs came from, uh, to see that many of those did come from the Torah. And in that sense, they'll realize a much closer affinity and bonding between Jew and Muslim. Thank you. Uh, final word to you, Ibrahim. I can't claim to be familiar with the Torah. It's a journey that I have begun, and it's a very, very beginning stages. I'm still trying to be familiar with the Quran. But I must say that it's a very hard sell for me to get Muslims to read the Torah because the argument will always come that, well, if the Quran is the final revealed word of God, Surely that's all we should be reading and reciting and trying to understand and practice. What's the point in going back? So you'll find that very select uh, numbers of Muslims will make time to study the Torah. Uh, those who are in academia, perhaps, who teach interfaith relations, perhaps uh, religious studies and the like, will keep uh, studying all of the various scriptures. But the average uh, Muslim worshipper is very less inclined to read previous scripture. Having said that, we, uh, certainly for myself, I will always, wherever an opportunity comes up, will share uh, aspects of previous scripture in my sermons, in my talks to Muslim uh, audiences. Uh, and in that way, at least there is some familiarity and exposure to the Torah. Well, I think the discussion with Sheikh Ibrahim has been really interesting because we see immediately when we were discussing Moses how the, how close the relationship is between the Quran and the Torah on that subject and indeed on nearly all subjects. And so uh, I think that with Jewish people realizing that the Quran commentates on their Torah, there should be less Quranophobia, with Muslims seeing that the Torah is a like a source book on which the Quran commentates, and why not read the source book? And in doing that, the two, Jew and Muslim, will find that they are so closely connected, even in their traditions, many of which come from the Torah, that I think that that would reduce any tensions between Jew and Muslim. Well, I hope you've enjoyed sitting in on this dialogue. Thanks to my guests, Ibrahim Mogra and Rick Sofa. And thanks to you too for listening. 
If you'd like to get in touch with any comments, thoughts, feedback, or reflections of your own, you can email reflections at nakedscientist.com. In the meantime, you can find more episodes of Naked Reflections and subscribe to Naked Reflections podcast wherever you get your podcasts or at nakedscientist.com slash reflections. Do join us next time. <laughs>